to four this morning. And if you're with us here this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now. They have plenty of Bibles. Just get their attention and uh, they'll get a Bible into your hands marked to where we're going to be studying this morning because we like everybody to hear the word of God, but also to read along for yourselves. So we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter four. And uh, while we're getting there on Sunday morning, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. So you might wonder why. It is that we're in Ephesians chapter four. So uh, let's also turn, if you found Ephesians four to first Thessalonians chapter five, hold your place in both spots. Because as we've been studying Jesus's life and ministry, we've been wonderfully immersed in what is known as his upper room discourse, his teaching to the disciples on of the night before his crucifixion and a great deal of what he has to say in that discourse or that teaching has to do with the Holy Spirit. So we've been looking at aspects of that in the last three or four weeks. And this morning, uh, I feel it's important to tie up a very important loose end in, in understanding what Jesus has taught thus far. And that's why we'll look at these uh, couple of verses this morning. Ephesians chapter four, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now turn to First Thessalonians, but hold your spot in Ephesians because we'll return to it in the in the study. First Thessalonians chapter five. Again, just a single verse, even shorter than the last verse 19. Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, do not quench the spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, we acknowledge your great and wonderful presence in this room today. We thank you for your activity in our lives. We thank you for your interest, Lord, and concern for our lives. And Lord, we know that no one is more eager for us to know the fullness of the Holy Spirit than the Holy Spirit himself. And so we pray that this morning... That he would take these truths that we're going to teach here today and that he would give them, that he would make it, number one, very simple and very clear. And then, Lord, that he would take these truths and give them a very living, daily, practical place in our Christian lives. We pray for those that stand before you right now, Lord, and they don't know you yet. They're still on the search for the meaning of life and haven't yet realized that it's found in a relationship with you through trust in your son for the forgiveness of sins. And we pray that today, in the greatness of your love, Lord, and your truth as it's spoken, that they would come to realize that their search is over with you, that they have found home. They have found the meaning of life, Lord, in you. They would surrender to you today and enter into the relationship that they've been created for a relationship without which nothing in life can satisfy and nothing in life can make sense. We ask all of these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Last Sunday morning we studied how to attain the 
spirit-filled, spirit-controlled Christian life, the victorious Christian life, through the power that is provided to us in what Jesus referred to or entitled the baptism with the Holy Spirit, how that as Christians the Holy Spirit is with us, He is also in us, but He is also to be upon us. And Jesus described the baptism with the Holy Spirit in this way. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me, Jesus said, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Holy Spirit provides us with the how. He provides us with the power to live a life just like Jesus, in any environment that we might find ourselves in in the world. No matter how dark, no matter how light, no matter how difficult, no matter how easy, all of them have their challenges. In parts of the world that have no Christian heritage, in parts of the world that have a deep Christian heritage, in whatever school we attend, in whatever neighborhood we live in, in whatever apartment complex we live in, whatever marriage we're involved in, whatever family he has made us a part of, whatever work environment we're in. Here is a power that is supplied us by the Holy Spirit to live a life like Christ in that environment. And this power, Jesus declared, is always there for the asking. He said, if we as human parents know how to give good gifts to our children, and we do, then how much more with our Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And that though a Christian needs only to experience the baptism with the Holy Spirit one time in their Christian life, the Bible teaches that we need to then ask to be refilled with the Holy Spirit on a regular basis as we have need. Paul wrote to a group of Christians in a city called Ephesus. And he wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, he said, Don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. It's a wasted way to live, he said. There's nothing good that comes out of it. He said, But be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that declaration that he makes, the verb there that is used is in the present imperative, meaning that it could just as easily be translated, be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. My favorite way of translating that verse is to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this week, I want to spend our time addressing how it is that we as Christians are able to maintain the Spirit-empowered, Spirit-controlled life. Last week, we addressed how to attain it, but this week we want to address how to maintain that life. Because I feel if we left, I mean, last week I felt like ending the sermon and saying, now hold that thought because I'm not done, but I didn't want to provoke you to wrath. An hour and seven minutes and you're not done? Come on! So I know my limits in a room like this, but I knew I would be returning to this this week. And I feel very strongly that I would be very negligent in terms of helping us to understand this dynamic of the Holy Spirit in our life if I didn't 
return to tie up a loose end or two. Let me give you an example of why I'd feel negligent if we didn't address what we will address here this morning. Perhaps this was even uh, someone's experience this last week where you asked God last Sunday morning to baptize you in his Holy Spirit. And he did that. And all week long, you've been asking to be refilled with the Holy Spirit for the power to live the Christian life. And yet this last week has been one of utter defeat for you, spiritually speaking. And as a result of this difficult week that you've had, this week of defeat, you're tempted to think, what's going on here? Maybe there's something wrong with God and all of this. Maybe this baptism of the Holy Spirit isn't real. Or maybe it just doesn't take in somebody's life like my life. Someone else might say, you know, I was baptized with the Holy Spirit earlier in my Christian life. I don't doubt the experience at all. I know what it feels like. I know what that power it feels like in a human life. But I find that over the years I've had trouble maintaining that dynamic of the Holy Spirit in my life. How does a person do that? How can I live like this? Not just for six days or for six weeks or for six months, but over the long term of my entire life. And somebody else might wonder, I have experienced the power of God. I know it's true, but my whole Christian life feels like two steps forward and one step back. And on most days, it feels more like one step forward and two steps back. What in the world is wrong with me? One of the things that we need to realize is that while the Holy Spirit does play the greater part in our attaining to a victorious Christian life, we, pay, we play a very vital role in maintaining that degree of anointing and power in our lives as Christians. And the two ways that we do that is, number one, to avoid grieving the Holy Spirit. And then, number two, by avoiding the quenching of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I want to begin by talking about the grieving of the Holy Spirit there in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, where the Apostle Paul exhorted the Christians at Ephesus not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Well, when I read a verse like that, I think to myself, well, I know grieve isn't a good word, but what in the world does it mean? What does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? In the Greek, the word, grie the word grieve means to cause pain to, to cause grief to, to distress, to make the Holy Spirit heavy or to make him sorry. So this tells us that as Christians, we have the potential to grieve the Holy Spirit. So that now that I understand what it is, my very next question in my mind is, how in the world does that happen? Because I want to avoid it. So how can I grieve or distress or cause pain or bring sorrow to the Holy Spirit? Now, we remember that when we became when we become Christians, the Holy Spirit himself comes into our lives to dwell. The Holy Spirit lives inside me. It's, it's wonderful to think about. 
God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit lives inside of you as a Christian. And because he lives inside of us, the result of that is he hears everything that we say. He listens to everything we listen to. Everything we allow into our ears, whether on an iPod or on the radio or in a private conversation, he watches everything that we watch, everything that comes into our eye gate, we expose the Holy Spirit to as well. He is a witness to everything that we do, everything we participate in. So he is made a part of everything that we hear, we speak, we see, and we do. And because of that, he's affected by it. So he is grieved when in any of those activities, he is exposed to sin in our lives, by the means of our doing, our seeing, our watching, our hearing, our actions. The Bible calls him not just a spirit, but the Bible refers to him as the Holy Spirit. And he is a Holy Spirit. I am glad that the Holy Spirit is a Holy Spirit. I'm glad God is a holy God. Now, I don't want you to beat me up with that every week. Because I'm pretty motivated in my relationship with the Lord. And I assume motivation in people that I speak to. But I'm glad God is as holy as he is. I would have been completely disheartened if I had come to know the true God, the God of the Bible, and discovered that he was exactly like me, only more powerful. I love the fact that he's holy. And that I am unable to conform him into my image or into my frailties, or into my sinfulness, but that He is willing to work in my life and in your life to make us holy, to make us like Him. So I rejoice in the holiness of God. I wouldn't want a God that wasn't holy. He's a Holy Spirit. Because He is a Holy Spirit, anything that is unholy or sinful in our lives It grieves him. And that's why Paul surrounds this commandment in Ephesians chapter uh, 4, verse 30. He surrounds this commandment not to grieve the Holy Spirit with a cross section of the kind of thing that does grieve the Holy Spirit. The kind of sins that grieve the Holy Spirit. I think that sometimes, and some of you can look and say, listen, sometimes you spend time talking about something that's so obvious. Sin is not obvious in our culture anymore. That lying is wrong and a sin is not obvious in our culture anymore. That sexual immorality is a sin is not a given in our culture anymore. So it's good to go back to the definitions of the Bible and to understand how he defines sin. Here's an example of some of the sins that Paul lists which grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 25, lying grieves the Holy Spirit in our lives. Verse 26, sinful anger. There's a righteous anger. God is righteously angry. Jesus was righteously angry at times. This is talking about a carnal, fly-off-the-handle, selfish, me, I, my kind of anger. He... It refers to stealing as an example of a sin that grieves the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 29, corrupt communication 
grieves the Holy Spirit. That word corrupt is a very interesting word in the original language. It means rotten. And it's actually a word picture. If you have ever bought a bowl of fruit in the summertime, you've got some peaches, you've got some nectarines, you've got some plums, you throw a couple of pears in there, an apple, a banana, whatever, you've got it all there in, in the, the fruit bowl. And, and you buy it not realizing that you're going to head off on vacation for a week and you forget to give it away or throw it away. And it's 108 degrees for the seven days that you're gone here in the Central Valley. And you come back to that bowl of fruit and it is corrupt. That's what the word means. Rotten. Spoiled. You look and you say, I think I'll grab the nectarine. And it just dissolves in your hand. And a thousand bugs come flying out. If they were never in your house when you left, how did they get into your house? Those fruit flies. And the nectarines have merged into the peaches and the peaches into the pears and the pears into the plums. And it's just a big corrupt mess. Sometimes our speech can be like that. Paul's saying corrupt communication. It's when I take something that's rotten in my own heart and now I introduce it through conversation into the heart of somebody else. Examples of it are murmuring and complaining, gossip and slander. It certainly includes foul language or swearing or dirty jokes. Another sin that grieves the Holy Spirit in verse 30 is bitterness and the unforgiveness that's usually associated with that. That grieves the Holy Spirit. It pains him. Wrath grieves the Holy Spirit. Verse 30. This talks about explosive anger. You know, the, that Irish temper, so they say. And uh, don't don't you Irish don't use that as an excuse. So it, it, it is this flying off the handle and you're just angry and hot, hot tempered talks about clamor, grieving the Holy Spirit in verse 30. This is the person who loves to fight principally by means of argument. One translation, maybe it's the old King James translates it brawling, but it isn't talking about fighting so much with your fist. This is talking about fighting with our mouths or with our words. There's a certain kind of person who'd never think of punching you. But I'll tell you, they they don't mind doing considerable damage to your reputation and to your person with their uh, shouting or their yelling or their arguing or their fighting or their slander. And this all grieves the Holy Spirit in our lives. He mentions evil speaking in verse 30. And this is injurious uh, speech. It's a little different from clamor. Clamor, for all of its faults, the person who's engaged in clamor does it to your face. The one who engages in evil speaking, they do it behind your back. So again, it's the gossip and the slander with, with the intent of injuring a person's name or their reputation. This grieves the Holy Spirit. Then there's malice in verse 30. Malice is essentially, essentially hatred. It, is a, it speaks of a desire to want to harm somebody, to do them uh, injury. Or if we feel like, all right, I'm a bit of a coward to do that, where we wish that somebody else would do it on our behalf uh, to the person so that evil would come to them. And even if nobody else knows that's in our heart, Holy Spirit knows it's in our heart because he lives inside of us. How will we know when we've grieved the Holy Spirit? 
I'll tell you, he has his ways. He will let us know. (laughs) He's very good at it. Very often in our spirit, it feels like when we've grieved the Holy Spirit, it feels like when we've done something or we've said something hurtful to someone that we love, like a husband or a wife or a close friend. And after we've said something hurtful or we've done something hurtful to them, there's that sense that the relationship has been damaged. The relationship has been strained. And we can feel it, can't we? That closeness that we knew before that event, that's gone. That intimacy that we knew, that's gone now. And there's just that feeling that things just don't feel right. And so that's why so often a person will ask their husband or their wife, is there anything wrong? Have I done something to offend you in some way? Have I done something to hurt you in some way? And then perhaps the wife will say, yes, you hurt my feelings when you said such and such or you did such and such. And if you care about the relationship, then you apologize for that. Admit you're wrong, make it right, and then the relationship returns to its former intimacy. In the same way, a person can finish watching something on the television or listening to something on the radio or finish a conversation with another person or finish buying something that they weren't supposed to. And afterwards, you just feel out of sorts with the Holy Spirit inside of you. There's just this sense that something has changed. Something is wrong now inside my heart. My peace has been interrupted in my relationship with the Lord. It's strained in some way. And so we ask God at a time like that and we say, Father, have I done something or said something that has grieved your Holy Spirit? that has produced pain for your Holy Spirit in my life. And if we have, he's always faithful to let us know what that thing is. Often the Holy Spirit will identify what it is that has grieved him. I mean, you'll just, he's very good at communicating. Say something like, in that conversation that you just left with that person and you said such and such about so and so, You don't know anything about that situation. You don't even know if what you shared with that person is uh, true. And that situation is none of your business. And the Holy Spirit communicates. We realize I was wrong there in that situation. Or sometimes we can say exactly the right things to another person. But we do it impatiently. We're just a little ticked off. Maybe not even at them, but just at life. And we're really abrupt in handling them all. And we walk away from it. And I mean, we might even try and rationalize it and justify it. And the Holy Spirit has his way of just disturbing his peace in our life and letting us know that that grieved him. He didn't like being made a part of that. And then we ask him, "Okay, what happened? He said, I don't want you treating people like that. You represent me. You were impatient with that person and frustrated in that situation. And it's grieved me and it's affected 
our relationship. And so when that happens, you know, of course, our heart sinks. If, and I know you're like me and you say, you're right, Lord. And then what should we do when we've grieved the Holy Spirit in this way? We should care enough about the relationship with him and the intimacy and closeness of that relationship to make it right. By saying, God, I thank you that you're a speaking God, even in the privacy of my own heart. And I acknowledge you were right and I was wrong there. And I don't want to ever do that again. So help me learn what I'm supposed to learn in this situation. And I ask you to forgive me for what just happened in that situation. And would you freshly fill me with your Holy Spirit so I can handle it better the next time. And the Bible says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I would venture to guess that this is a regular, ongoing experience between us and the Holy Spirit. Because we fall short of Christ's likeness in our lives. If Christ is the standard, and he is then there's always going to be room for growth in our Christian lives until we one day see him face to face. So this conversation, this dynamic of the spirit in our life is always going to be going on. And while it isn't fun, I think it's one of the most glorious experiences in the Christian life. Because it is such a powerful testimony to the reality of the fact that God Almighty in the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Who could know what he knows? Who could speak to us so privately and so carefully and with such reality? Who could give us a sense of his grief before we take care of the situation that's caused grief to him? Who could relieve all of the, the, uh, the dynamic of, of estrangeness between us and the Holy Spirit and have peace and relationship restored immediately upon addressing the situation. And I love it because it's one of the great evidences to me, maybe because he talks to me about this kind of stuff so much. He doesn't, you. I hope there's a few people have this on a regular, even daily basis. But it really is one of the great evidences of the reality of the Holy Spirit indwelling us as Christians. And you really do come to rejoice in it. David wrote in Psalm 23, and he said to the Lord, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. It was very poetic and beautiful in a psalm, and it's a famous psalm and everything. But a rod and a staff were Instruments of discipline in the hands of a, of a shepherd. A rod was a, basically a, a kind of a ball on the end of a stick and a short stick. And if a lamb was getting out of the way, he learned how to throw that to get the lamb back in amongst the flock. And then the, a, a staff was one where you would just be sharpened on one end and you'd take and jab a sheep to get it right back in, into, the, into the flock. And this is, his, this is his rod and this is his staff as he works in our life. The writer of the book of Hebrews said, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. I know he loves me a lot. <laughs> and I know you feel the same way. But it's wonderful. Now notice, too, 
that it's also important not to quench the Holy Spirit. And so let's turn over to First Thessalonians chapter five, verse 19 for this. Quenching the Holy Spirit is even more serious than grieving the Holy Spirit. So we ask ourselves, what does it mean to quench the Holy Spirit? And the word quench, it means to extinguish the power, the influence, the anointing of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now talk about salvation. Not talking about losing salvation. Here, Paul is writing to Christians there in the city of Thessalonica. But it is, again, the loss of power or, in, or the Holy Spirit's influence or his anointing in our lives. So how does this quenching of the Holy Spirit occur in the life of a Christian? And I think it happens principally two ways. First of all, he can be quenched through just willful, deliberate, ongoing protracted disobedience to God's word. It appears that this that grieving becomes quenching when we ignore the grieving of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so God comes to us and and we Engage in a sin. The Holy Spirit is grieved by what we're doing. He communicates his grief and we blow him off. We say the relationship isn't worth that sin. I'm going to engage in that sin. Not talking about something that's, you know, non-deliberate or where somebody is unknown that they're doing this kind of a thing. This is a deal where somebody knows what they're doing. They've experienced God's conviction and they say, no, I am going to dig in and I'm going to practice this sin in my life, even though I know it's forbidden by God. The Apostle Paul uses the word quench and and as he uses it. It's intended to produce a very specific image in our mind. And the image is that of a campfire. I trust everybody can picture a campfire in your mind. If you can't, you've got to get out of this city once in a while. Or watch some reruns of Bonanza. they got a lot of them on that. It's pretty safe. A television watching. Now, campfire is a wonderful thing. Like some of the best heat. In life, when you've got cold bones, comes from a fire. To me, the only better heat is the sun. Right on your cold old bones is the sun. So a campfire is a great thing. Gives off warmth. Gives off light. It influences the whole campground. It really exudes an influence throughout, you know, even beyond its, its immediate presence. Have you ever watched somebody extinguish a fire by drenching it with water? There the fire is. It's burning brightly. And then someone walks up with a big, large bucket of water, pours it on the fire and effectively puts it out. It's a very effective way to put out a fire, to pour a a large bucket of water on the fire. And in the same way, the power, the influence the anointing, the full expression of the Holy Spirit in our lives can be put out by the constant bombardment of deliberate, willful sin in our lives. When we ask God to baptize us with his Holy Spirit, 
when we ask him to refill us with his Holy Spirit, he assumes that the request is a sincere request that we're making, that we do want to live like Christ, that we do want to live a holy life, that there's that genuine desire. But when a person is living a life as a Christian and professes to know Christ and they're living a life of deliberate, willful sin, and then at the same time they're asking to continually be refilled with the Holy Spirit, they're saying one thing with their mouth and another thing with their lives. And the Lord takes seriously the fruit, what it is that's being said through the life. And so he doesn't refill with the Holy Spirit. And thus the Holy Spirit remains quenched in that person's life. And what that person needs to do is settle the issue of Jesus' lordship in their life and then ask to be filled and then move forward in this, this relationship with the Lord. So when we ask for this baptism with the Holy Spirit, ask to be refilled, then subsequently uh, on a regular basis with the Holy Spirit, we have to mean that. We have to want that. Now, the second way to quench a fire is through simple neglect, to fail to give it the fuel that it needs to burn. Fires need continual resupply of fuel in order to continue to burn strong. So you've got to keep adding those logs to the fire. If you don't, then that fire is going to go out. And so sometimes the fire or the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives can begin to dim if we fail to give it that influence, the spiritual fuel that it needs. Remember on the day of Pentecost when here they are, they're baptized with the Holy Spirit and the phenomenon of the gift of tongues and tongues of fire and all the, everything that's happening there. And as this great diverse crowd is in the city of Jerusalem and they're seeing the supernaturalness of the event and they begin to take pot shots at guessing what it is that is happening among this group of of, uh, you know, Christians, they don't even know them as Christians at this point, And they're coming to all the wrong conclusions. And Peter stands up and he corrects their misconceptions and he begins to preach Christ to them. And at the end of his sermon on the day of Pentecost, 3000 people were saved. The apostles didn't then say to those 3000, well, there you go, you're saved. And you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's all there is to the Christian life. You've got the fire. Now that's all you need. Now what they did is. They took these 3,000. That had just been saved. Filled with the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2 verse 42. They began to throw some logs. On the fire. Of their lives that God had begun in their lives. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, you have one of the greatest descriptions of spiritual fuel that can be added to a Christian's life to keep that fire burning. And there we're told by Luke, and they continued steadfastly, number one in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. The apostles' doctrine is the teaching of the word of God. It's the Bible. It's the word of God. It is a invaluable and necessary fuel for this anointing and this fire of the Holy Spirit 
within our lives. Consistent, ongoing sowing of the word of God into our spirits and into our spiritual life. Examples of this is just what we're doing here this morning as we're studying the word of God or attending other Bible studies at the church or at other churches or home fellowships uh, during the week. This kind of thing happens when we can be listening to the word of God through uh, CDs or on the iPod or whatever it might be. I remember when I was a new Christian, I was a cable splicer for the phone company and I was a construction splicer at that time. And so I worked a lot on dead cables, not always, but a lot of times. And some of these cables were big. They're 1,800 pairs. They're 2,400 pairs that you're splicing. And it's just dead work. Nobody's line is going to go out and all. It's fairly tedious, but it's good work. But it's just kind of tedious work. I'd listen to seven Bible studies a day. I went through hundreds and hundreds of Bible teachings in the early months and years of my Christian life, even to this day. And I don't commute. I live fairly close to the church here in town, but the running around town and here and there and all. I've always got a Bible study going. And I can go through go through several Bible studies a week for my own edification just on on that basis. And it's putting fuel into my life. When we sit down in the morning and we have our devotional life and here we are, we've given out so much the day before and and so much need. And here's the day that's out in front of us. And we pick up our Bible and we begin to read it. You can feel what it does to your spirit. You can feel the virtue. It's it's like you've grabbed a hold of one of those goo packs or. Uh, and popped it open and done a quick gel charge into your body. I mean, you instantly begin to feel what this does, not in us physically, but in our spirit. We're giving our spirit a meal. We're giving it fuel that it desperately needs on a regular basis. So the word of God does that. It adds needed fuel to the fire. And he talks about fellowship, talks about our need to be around other Christians. I hate Christians. Well, you need them. <laughs> and you'll learn to love them as you become like Christ. The importance of gatherings like this and smaller ones and groups of three and five and two where we're in contact with one another. I'm not talking about the giants. I'm not talking about that. I'm not saying that you can't do that. Well, that doesn't add any fuel to this fire. Where we talk about the things of the Lord. I never have fellowship with another Christian or a group of Christians where the things of the Lord are the discussion and the Lord himself, except I walk away enriched. Something in a beautiful way has, of fuel has been added to my life. There's no lone ranger Christianity. We need each other. And the Bible talks about this fellowship that we have with one another, that it's like iron sharpening iron. We talk with one another. We fellowship with one another. and We end up sharper spiritually as a result. So much of what the Holy Spirit teaches us in our Christian life, he teaches through other Christians. That's why the Bible says not to forsake the assembling together of the saints, which is what we're doing here today. I do not 
know of one. They may exist, so don't write me a letter. But I've walked with the Lord since 1980. I don't know of one single Christian who is having a dynamic influence for God and the kingdom of God in the world who neglects the assembling together of the saints. The importance of what we learn. If I get, if I get separated from fellowship, I mean, that, that, you take that lamb out of that flock, I mean, the, the devil just going to look around and say, is this a trap? That's too easy to take him out. And then we get lost, left without the input of other Christians or Bible teaching in, in this kind of an atmosphere where I'm not choosing what I'm going to hear or listen to. And then we get left living in our own heads. And then we begin to get depression and we begin to get wrong perspectives and then we begin to get fear and we're isolated and there's no human being that we're allowing in our life for God to use to speak to us in that way. And so the importance of, of fellowship, then the importance of the breaking of bread in this vein, talking about the Lord's Supper, a time that's just set aside to remember Christ, remember his sacrifice, remember his forgiveness of our sin. Remember the grace that he has shown us to remember that he's coming back again one day. Remembering these things as we partake of the Lord's Supper it provides a wonderful fuel related to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And then there's prayers communicating with God. And this includes worship and praise like it, like we enjoy as the worship team leads us in worship in that way. And that prayer and that worship and that praise, it all provides a wonderful fuel to the spiritual fire of our Christian lives. God is always faithful to fill us and to refill us with his Holy Spirit when we ask. Praise the Lord for that. That's amazing privilege. But our place in maintaining a spirit-controlled life is to then treat that fire of God's Holy Spirit for the valuable thing that it is, to protect it. How do we do that? I recap the sermon. Number one, by being quick to acknowledge the Holy Spirit when he's been grieved by some sin that we've committed. Making that right with God through confession and repentance. Never blow the Lord off when he speaks to us in that way. Because the only thing that can happen then is that grieving then turns into quenching. Which is a far more dangerous condition to be in. So, number one, we need to be quick to acknowledge the Holy Spirit when he has communicated that he's been grieved by some sin that we've committed. And then number two, by being careful not to settle into a life where some area of sin or disobedience to God's word becomes deliberate and ongoing. And then threatens now to quench the influence 
of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I want us to think about that for a moment. The privacy of your own heart. Have you or I become comfortable with some ongoing sin? Something that goes into the eyes, into the ears, something that comes out of the mouth, something that's forbidden by God. And we know, can name virtually the very month that God spoke to us about that issue in our life and how his Holy Spirit was grieved by that particular sin. And we just told the Lord, in essence, to get lost. And we just continued in that sin into a life of grieving the Holy Spirit. And then a person cannot even realize what they've done sometimes. Come into a room like this week after week after week after week and ask themselves, think that there's something that needs to improve on our part. There's some other person's fault for the deadness of their spiritual condition, that there's no fire, that it was long ago put out. It's all because of that sin that's been chosen. And so the importance of looking and saying, Lord, I recognize if it's true in any of our lives that I have quenched your Holy Spirit in my life through this choice. And then to confess it for the sin that it is. Repent of that sin. And then to ask to be freshly filled with the Holy Spirit and the Christian life that you once knew and rejoiced in and thought was long gone and you could never have again, is there waiting for you once again. But it will require this, the stopping of the sin that is continually quenching the Holy Spirit in, in your life or in our, uh, my life. And then number three in this maintaining a spirit-controlled life, then there, we need to also be faithful to feed the flame of the Holy Spirit uh, within us, with the spiritual logs, so to speak, that God has provided to us, the fuel of God's word, of his fellowship with uh, fellow Christians, the Lord's Supper and prayer. And so often a person can sit again in a room like this and say, there is no dynamic to my Christian life. I ask, I ask, I ask, I ask, I ask to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I ask to be refilled with the Holy Spirit. There's no fire. There's no life. There's no dynamic a part of, uh, that's a part of my life. What is the place of the Word of God in your life? What is the place of prayer? I have no interest in beating anybody up. I'm just trying to give some revelation to a truth from God's Word. Or to give some illumination or illustration to it. And this dynamic is gone. But prayer left a long time ago. Bible reading and Bible study left a long time ago. I can't remember the last time somebody might say that I had uh, the Lord's Supper. I hate Christians. I run from them or I don't care to have a relationship with any of them. I can't tell you if, whether, how many years ago it's been since I've learned that I've even had a spiritual conversation with another Christian, let alone uh, learn something from it. And again, we can have this whole thing where we're thinking it's a fault on God's end. Some 
failure on his part, that he's making promises to us just to torment us here, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and many refillings. And then it takes tying up these kind of loose ends to realize, oh, he does all the heavy lifting in attaining a spirit-filled life. But we do play a part in the maintaining of of this spirit-filled life. And it's good to know. And it's important to know. And I know it was very helpful for me to learn these things that I've shared this morning at some point in my Christian life. And I wouldn't want a single person to try and live this life without knowing them as well. So I hope they'll be hopeful for you too. Let's stand together and we'll pray.